the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 25, Episode 4, Critical Thinking, Your Essential Guide, by Dr. Tom Chatfield. We are awash with information on the internet, TV, press, radio, and there's no escaping it with our ever-present smartphones. And we're faced with an even more confusing information ecosystem as bad actors sow disinformation and slipshod journalism passes off poorly researched and often false stories as fact. Deciphering fact from fiction is an ever-growing challenge, and 2024 poses even greater challenges in this regard, with looming elections in the United States, the United Kingdom, India, Mexico, and several other countries. And the advent of AI, which is infiltrating our news feeds, makes it all the more important for us to think about what we read and hear much more critically. Our guest today, Tom Chatfield, is the author of Critical Thinking, An Essential Guide. He joins us from his office near London. Hello, Tom, and welcome to the show. Hello, Jim, and um, thank you very much indeed for having me. My pleasure. Tom, please take a few moments to tell our listeners about yourself and your work. So I describe myself as a philosopher of technology, which is in some ways a hand-waving phrase that indicates I'm interested in what it means to think about and to use technology well, rather than to be an uncritical user of digital systems, to be someone who asks what the histories and intentions and purposes and potentials of technologies are. My own background is a very mixed one. I did a doctorate in literature and philosophy and have written from a, from a young age across lots of different media, from poetry and stories to video games. I was also a geek who, who worked on coding and gaming in my spare time. And this came together for me when I began a career as an author, writing a book about video games and following this up with work around digital culture and the ways in which technology was transforming the world but also the ways in which everything we do, from politics and art to relationships and democracy, is mediated through technological systems. It fascinates me. And so I've written now a dozen or so books which explore various aspects of digital culture. Critical thinking has preoccupied me for the last almost decade, I think. I've worked very closely with Sage Publishing, a social, social science publisher, to try and take the insights of fields like behavioral economics and sociology, as well as philosophy and logic, and see how these can be practically applied to everyday living and study. And so ultimately, I guess, I'm someone who works with people and individuals and companies and academic institutions to talk about what it means to, to take control of your thoughts in a digital age, to make the most of the tools at our fingertips, rather than, as you put it very nicely in the introduction, ended up being bewildered, bamboozled, manipulated, or overwhelmed by them. Well, Tom, thank you very much. That's very impressive. Now, the digital age, of course, as you just said, brings both challenges and opportunities to the promotion of critical thinking. What prompted you to write this specific book, Critical Thinking, Your Essential Guide? This book is uh, an edition of a, of a textbook. You know, I, I wanted to write a book that was, if you like, a textbook with popular appeal that could above all be a companion book to, to young people and anyone setting out on a course of study at a, at a graduate or postgraduate level. So there's this place where people leave high school, they, or they go back into education at an older age, 
And perhaps for the first time in their lives, they're studying for themselves, not in a not in a high school with teachers there and, and parents and so on. They're on their own trying to learn the skills that will take them into the world of work, that will help them engage with the world as citizens and as, as adults. I have spent a lot of time in and around academic institutions. And again and again, I heard people saying that they had so much information at their fingertips, unbelievable opportunities and interconnections, but it was overwhelming. They didn't know where to begin. They didn't know what to trust. And they didn't quite know how to trust their own minds. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, it can feel like what you need to do to do an essay or a project or, or get a job is kind of copy and paste or ask an AI to do it for you. It's sort of find or download a solution online. So it seemed to me there was a crisis around people having the time and the permission and the tools to think for themselves, to know their own thoughts, and then kind of to be confident, discerning users of the riches at their fingertips. So I tried to make a book that's a companion. And in the book itself, it's a very physical object, actually. It has digital editions, and I also work on online courses. But the, but the book is something that you literally are encouraged to scribble in, mm -hmm. to answer questions, to, to spend time, to pause. And this is really interesting to me. This is one reason I love books, not just because I write them, and not just because I love reading them. But the kind of time and attention that a good book can, can give you, can invite you to spend with ideas in your own mind, is a lovely thing. And I think one that's all the more precious in this tumultuous digital context. I very much enjoyed reading the book. And one of the features that I enjoyed of the book, because after all, a, a 200, 300-page book on critical thinking might be quite daunting to most readers, but this book is not. This book, of course, contains all of the theory, but you also have exercises in the book. And as you say, it's a it's a book which is meant to be used, which is meant to be written in, where you can make notes. There are exercises at the end of chapters. So I, I found the book very engaging, drew me in, and rather than a text that was that was purely theoretical, I felt that I was being drawn in and being engaged to interact with the text and to actually practice what I had just read in a chapter. You know, the point that you make about AI is uh, so important because at this point in the early, these early days of AI, and of course here in San Francisco, we have 15 of the, uh, the top 18 artificial intelligence companies in the world. So it's all around us here in uh, San Francisco in the Bay Area. When you pose a question to AI and the answer comes back, it can be intimidating because particularly for a younger for a younger student or a younger person they might be perhaps too respectful of the answer that they get from ai and not critical enough let's remember that these large language models of ai are really in the early stages and are not meant to be stone tablets coming down from the mountaintop. They are information. It's not sacred information. It's information that can be challenged. What's your advice to a listener who's in the early stages of using artificial intelligence? How do they incorporate critical thinking and the exercises that you've outlined in your book? How do they bring critical thinking to the use of AI? The first thing I'd say here is that the great gift of AI, and you know, it's an incredibly powerful, and as you say, emerging technology. When we come to large language models, they can endlessly, fluently, plausibly supply answers to any question, mm -hmm. pretty much. And that's great. But what that means is that it's up to us to come up with questions worth asking. It's in particular important for us to frame knowledge and exploration and understanding not as a single question answer, not as a kind of you know, exam where you ask that, 
the question, you get the answer, that's done. Knowledge and understanding are a process. What I would encourage people to do is, you know, ask question the questions, ask multiple questions, two practical things. First of all, no matter what you're interested in, there's more than one way of, of framing it. Let's say for the sake of argument in a business context, you're interested in efficiency. Mm-hmm. Efficiency is good, right? Do more with less. What could be wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. But of course, there are many, many different ways of defining and measuring efficiency, and some of them are incompatible. So the question is not just, is efficiency good? The question is, what do you want to be efficient at doing and why? So there's all the difference in the world between saying to an AI, saying, typing into an LLM, how can I make my business more efficient? Give me some tips. You know, I I work in construction. I work in marketing. How can I be more efficient? Give me some advice. And treating it like as an oracle, as you say, well, you don't learn a lot. To some degree, what you learn is like the average of the internet. It's pretty useful, but everyone else has got the tools, so it's not exactly going to give you an edge. And of course, it's plausible stuff, but but it may or may not be closely connected to reality. However, if you instead challenge yourself to frame this question in three, four, five, six different ways, you can start to dig into the assumptions behind it and really explore the area with AIs and a companion. How many different ways are there of thinking about efficiency in a business context? If I want to get more efficient in terms of my supply chain, what what should I bear in mind? If I want to get more efficient in terms of my own time and productivity, what should I do? What are some of the best efficiency tools out there? What are some of the problems with efficiency? What measures other than efficiency might I want to consider if I want to try to maximize my potential in this particular area of business? And so on and so on. And I think once we do this, we very quickly start to realize that in an age of AI, which could endlessly answer questions for us, Critical thinking becomes more and more important because we are like you know the boss of a small company. Mm-hmm. We're like the head scientist leading a small research organization. You've got these this infinite number of interns, this kind of endlessly patient, plausible tool at your disposal. But that makes it incredibly important for you to point it in the right direction for you to have a strategic overview of the issues at stake, of the questions that need to be answered. Scientific research is a good analogy for me. You might think, you know, if you were in charge of a scientific team and you were researching, for example, a cancer, you would just say as the boss of this team, I want to find out what cures cancer. (laughs) Go Mm -hmm. find that out. Go do that research. Fairly obviously, life is not that simple. What you're going to have to do is say, for example, okay, let's find a kind of cancer that we can investigate. Let's Which cancers kill the most people? Which are the most deadly? Which are the most common? What kind of interventions are ethical? What can we try? What's out there? What's possible? How can we measure this well? How can we measure its impact? How can we conduct a trial? How can we can be ethical? And so on and so on. So suddenly, your critical engagement with the assumptions and ideas and strategies in a field and your ability to, if you like, direct and explore meaningful research there becomes super important. So far from this being a simple thing where you've got this magical tool that answers all your questions, and that's great, when the issue you're dealing with is complex or interesting or you want to make a difference and distinguish yourself from others, in some ways the challenge has been turned right up. It's, it's all the more important that you are giving it some serious time and attention because it's up to you to come up with a, if you like, a research and investigation strategy that's actually going to deliver the goods mm-hmm. and not just deliver a bunch of kind of plausible stuff that anybody could get in five seconds. Coming back to journalism, of course, the old adage 
among in the journalist profession was to always follow the five W's, to ask the questions, the who, what, why, when, which, all of those posing of questions, in a sense, We can do that also with critical thinking, as you've just outlined. As we pose a question, it's not just one question. We can then drill down deeper after that first question with our who, what, why, when, where, etc. Let's come on to the elections, because both in the United Kingdom and here in the United States, we're both facing very important elections this year. And we've seen in the past, particularly here in the U.S., I'm not sure in the U.K., but particularly here in the U.S., we've seen a cycle of elections where there has been a lot of disinformation and disinformation which has been generated by bad actors, disinformation which, of course, has been generated by political opponents back and forth. Talk to me about how we as informed citizens, whether in the UK or the United States, how we should be prepared over this coming year as we're being assaulted left, right, and center by political messages, by from the incumbents, from the challengers. What sort of critical thinking tools should we be applying as we listen to these leaders who are asking for our votes? Because the stakes are very high. Uh, the stakes are very high in both countries. What sort of critical thinking exercises can we use to make sure that we're informed and that we're getting the right kind of answers from these politicians who are asking for a vote? This is where I think it's extremely important for critical thinking to be as psychologically literate as possible. And by that, I mean we cannot, unfortunately, simply take the position that loudly trying to proclaim you ought to believe X, and here's the evidence. This is right, this is logical, this is reasonable. If you don't agree with this, you're being foolish, check your facts, and so on. That's very divisive. It's very unpersuasive. It completely fails to speak to the reality of how people make up their minds and are persuaded and so on. So I think it's enormously important to begin with a very large degree of, as it were, modesty and self-awareness. By modesty, I mean kind of modesty of claims, and modesty of skepticism towards yourself as much as others. The golden rule of critical thinking is slow down. If you don't slow down and think twice and scrutinize your own emotional reactions, Mm -hmm. then you're going to fall victim to various kinds of bias, even if you're a very highly educated person, maybe especially if you are, because you're still going to be inclined to go with things that that flatter your worldview. Now, your worldview may be a very evidence-based and highly educated one, but nevertheless, you're going to be inclined to be dismissive of those who disagree with you without really getting to the heart of the disagreement. So slowing down and not going with your gut is very important. Then exactly the questions you say, why should I believe this? Upon what basis should I be persuaded of anything? This tends to require honesty when it comes to ourselves. Okay, what, what exactly? A simple heuristic, a simple shortcut I sometimes use is, If you want to think for yourself, put it in your own words. Mm -hmm. What am I being asked to believe? At root, what's this claim I'm being asked to believe? Upon what basis am I being asked to believe it? And if you can answer that question honestly, you may surprise yourself by the fact that some claims that you accept, you don't actually have terribly good reason for accepting them. Well, I'm being asked to believe that I shouldn't vote for this politician because the person I like says they're a a bad guy, they're a bad person. And And that's that. And that's good enough for me. Well, is it? I think when it comes to disagreements between people, one of the great challenges is, when it comes to disagreements between people, I think one of the great challenges is that 
especially if we're, you know, people who are highly engaged with the news and things like critical thinking and so on, it's very tempting to to get on someone's case if they disagree with you. You know, mm -hmm. why do you believe that? How could you believe that? What's really going on? Why do you believe that? And so on. And I think confrontation and aggression and talking down to people or is, again, deeply unpersuasive. The, the really important thing, if you want to have a constructive conversation with, with people who aren't like you, is is in a way to, to practice the same thing I was suggesting you practice on yourself in terms of boiling things down and say, well, okay, why do you believe that? But, but not in a judgmental way. Talk me through it. Okay, talk me through the evidence. Talk me through the why. Put it in your own words. Just take me through this claim. Again and again, you discover when you do this that the reasons people believe things are not the reasons they give, not because they're lying, but because the thing that's publicly said and the kind of emotional reason behind it are two very different things. Mm -hmm. Someone might say, for example, I'm voting for this politician because they're right on the key issues, because you know they, they're someone who's going to make the country rich, going to make us successful. And you dig into that and you say, really, you know, so so what are their policies? And you're like, well, you know, what, what the particular policy they're going to pursue? They say, well, I, you know, I, I don't know what they're going to do. I just, I trust them. And you say, okay, so actually, fair enough. So really, there's someone you trust, but why do you trust them? Well, because when they talk, I feel respected. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, okay. So actually, you like the way that you feel when this person person talks, but, but why is that? Well, because I don't like the way the other ones talk. Okay, <laughs> so at root then, this is about the fact that when somebody else talks, you feel that they are they're lying. They're insincere. They they don't represent you. That that's fine. But but what? So what would it take to change your mind? Like this person, you you, you want to vote for them, but does that mean you've got reason to believe the things they do are going to be good for you? Mm -hmm. Or is it just that the way they make you feel? Or does this matter? Now, this all sounds a long way from logic and evidence and persuasion and so on. But the position I come back to again and again is that if we've all agreed that we're going to be bound by the rules of evidence and reason and argument and so on, that's, that's fine. And we can start a business or have a conversation or do some research. But if we're in a democracy trying to talk about politics, then really the first thing that we need to do is be an awful lot more modest and honest about where we're coming from, mm -hmm. what the kind of emotional fundamentals for us, and what the fundamental motivators are, who we trust, who we don't mm -hmm. trust, how we feel. And if we can have that kind of common ground, then we can then start to try and find maybe some areas in common. Simplify. Simplify it down to your own words is my infallible motto for critical <laughs> thinking. Try and talk about what you actually feel, what you actually think. Find your own words for it. Don't just repeat other people's phrases. Wise counsel. Let's move on to our children. And of course, our children go to school. They're listening to their teachers. What we have seen over the last, I don't know, five, 10 years is a, a moving away in a lot of curriculum here in the United States, I dare say in, uh, in the UK, a moving away from teaching of history, for instance, and or taking a different perspective on history or looking at history through a different kind of lens than we may have learned history 20, 30 years ago. Additionally, a lot of changes in society where people are expressing points of view and expressing lifestyles that, again, were not subjects for discussion in the classroom. Tell me how we should be talking to our children, our grandchildren, when they come home from school and they tell us that um, they've learned some quote-unquote historical fact from their teacher, which is at complete odds from what we may have learned 10, 20, 30 years ago. Or they're talking about you know, some social movement or social activities that, again, we may question whether that's appropriate to be discussed in school. Talk to me about how we 
talk to our youngsters about critical thinking, on the one hand, being respectful to their teachers, but on the other hand, making sure that our children understand that some of these subjects that are being taught or these perspectives that are being taught might be passing fads. How do we teach our kids, our youngsters, to be critical thinkers? I should preface this by saying that I'm, I'm British, and so I have limited experience with the American educational system. I mean, in general, I still think it comes back to these questions of why, that when you're asking someone to respect or, or, or adopt a view, on the one hand, there's, re- there's respect for the basic ethic reason of having respect for someone's deeply held personal review, uh, views. But on the other hand, there's making the, the argument, making the case to someone that a particular perspective is a valid or important way of seeing something as a useful lens or tool for thinking through. I, I do think it's important in general to emphasize that there is never only one way of seeing something. Mm-hmm. And I think there's never some kind of final and absolute answer that this is the only way to say X or Y. In general, I'm not in favor, as it were, of, of dogmatism wherever it's found. Dog- dogmatism being the idea that it just is, that X is, is, is like this and it's beyond discussion. Mm-hmm. That's a tricky one because you might say that ethically and pragmatically and in family and so on, plenty of things ought to be on discussion. They ought to be completely unacceptable. But even if that's the case, I think it, it behoves one to say why they're unacceptable. With children in general, there's, there's a rule of thumb in, I think, parenting and education um, alike, which, which I think is often a good one, which is that if a, if a child is if you like, old enough to ask the question, they're old enough to get an answer. But of course, the answer has to be pitched at a level of understanding and context and language and reference that, that's appropriate to the age and stage of the child, that allows them to have an understanding that's appropriate for an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old, um, or indeed a young adult. It's a question for schools and families as to where their, their comfort lies with particular issues. But I, I like to think that on important issues, there are no issues that can't be discussed. Mm-hmm. It's just how they're discussed and whether they're discussed in an appropriate way that aids understanding rather than blocks it or ends it. Mm-hmm. That seems to me to be the crucial thing. So I, generally speaking, I talk about talking in arguments rather than assertions. An assertion would be to say, for example to pick a perhaps a less controversial but moral topic you know it's wrong we should all be vegetarian it's wrong it's wrong to eat meat mm-hmm. that's a view but just saying that saying it's wrong to eat meat full stop is in many ways not that useful a bit of pedagogy or even moral instruction to say the argument that you should be a vegetarian or, or vegan which is a separate and stronger form of argument is based on the idea that and then you might lay out your, your premises in support of that and evidence and say that you know it involves large amounts of unnecessary suffering it's unnecessary because it's perfectly possible for humans to have a healthy diet if they don't eat meat. And then you might say, well, there are counter-arguments. So some people, for example, say that the, there are plenty of ways of, of raising and uh, farming animals and feeding people that don't involve huge amounts of unnecessary suffering. Or some people say that, you know, it's humans evolved to eat meat and um, they enjoy it and animal suffering doesn't matter that much in the grand scheme of things, for example. And then what you're doing when you talk to people like this is you're trusting them mm-hmm. in a way that's appropriate to their age and stage to, to, to form their own ideas about this and to weigh up evidence. To some degree, you have to be prepared, I think, if you want to have thinkers and citizens who can think and take part in democratic processes and have a plurality of views. You need to have people who you can trust with facts and evidence and arguments rather than having to tell them, to dictate to them mm. that it is just the way things are and anybody who says anything else is unacceptable and beyond the pale. A democracy has to involve a plurality of views 
and a method for both tolerating some you know, variance in those views and also allowing people to, to change their minds and to educate themselves and to argue productively with each other. It's a bit idealised, mm -hmm. isn't it? But I, but I do think that one of the great difficulties is when either an educational institution or a parent has a dogmatic view about something. I do think one of the difficulties and challenges is when either a parent or an educational institution has a dogmatic view about something and, and, and if it doesn't want to trust children with facts, arguments, ideas, even couched in a way that's, if you like, appropriate to their age and stage. And, and I think, broadly speaking, a society of critical thinkers is one that finds ways to empower learners as they go along to, to seek facts and test ideas and be unafraid to express doubt mm -hmm. and change their mind and to be unafraid of complexity. So moral simplicity is very attractive. But for me, at least, and I'm aware this in itself is a, an ethically and politically charged position, but, you know, complexity and, and respect for others' views and, and the willingness to change your mind admit uncertainty are all strengths in leadership, in education, in society. They're, they're values that we ought actively to model. Well, Tom, in the remaining few minutes of the show, what are your closing thoughts and how can we all become better critical thinkers? Well, just two things, because I've been speaking at quite a bit of length. First, just try imagining you're talking to a fictional child, if you like, you know, or to yourself when you're a young person. What would it mean to express some of your own basic assumptions and views in very simple terms? So, you know, I'm, what do I think is, is right and wrong and why? What do I think are the most important things in life? You know, if you're trying to work through something, trying to just explain it in, in very simple, principled, basic terms is a really good discipline, not least because it might bring you face to face with some gaps in your knowledge and understanding. And secondly, gaps in knowledge and understanding is fine. Most of us don't know most things. Most of us are pretty ignorant about most things in the world, just by definition. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. One of the most powerful phrases I think you can bring into the world as a critical thinker is, I don't know. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. What's your view? It's a great thing if you're in a room with people who disagree with you, assuming it's a room where you can have a, a conversation without getting angry with each other. They say, you know, what do you think about X? What do you think about Y? What's your view on this? And you're like, well, you know, I'm not quite sure. What do you think? What's going on? I might be wrong. Just admitting to doubt and exploring ideas. And lastly, pauses, taking the time and place to do this. Mm -hmm. Just going with your gut, going with social media, going with the headlines, reacting at a very high pitch of emotional engagement. That's appropriate to some issues sometimes, but it also can be the enemy of careful thought. And you can find yourself backed into a corner where you can't then admit that there's more to be said, that someone else has got a point, that there's more to be learned, that it's complex. It's a dangerous position because once you've got someone like that, it can be very hard to, to back down and make the kind of progress that critical thinking is ultimately all about, which is the triangulation between many views and, and the sort of project of trying to become less deceived collectively. And Tom, what other significant projects are you working on at this point in addition to critical thinking? So I've just um, designing a, a business course for The Economist about critical thinking with some other great people, mm -hmm. which can be found online if you're business-minded. In the UK and then later around the world, I have a new book called Wise Animals coming out at the end of February. I don't think it'll be in the US for a while, but it's a philosophical exploration of technology and ethics and things like that. And that's probably plenty to be getting on with. I'm also online talking and, and writing and, um, and easily found if you Google my name. And tell us, uh, tell us once again about the, the Economist study that you did on critical thinking. Where can our listeners access that? So that is an online course, and it, it's targeted at businesses. So it would be really for people who are um, you know, executives, 
um, and wanting to train. So it's um, it's corporate training, if you like, and it's 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 a critical thinking and decision making course uh, run via the Economist Education Online. I see. So if our listeners were to go to Economist Education Online, critical thinking, they would eventually find your course. That those those search terms would unearth it, yes, okay. and then they would they would find hopefully. Excellent. And Tom, where can our listeners buy a copy of your book, Critical Thinking, An Essential Guide? I would hope it's in most good bookshops, or at least the big ones, and online, of course, and and all the major online retailers. Mm -hmm. And Tom, how can our listeners follow you? I have a bit of a presence on X, formerly known as Twitter, and I, I write and speak for a number of different outlets. I have a, a newsletter called How to Think, uh, which I publish sporadically. And I would recommend, as I say, if you do follow me on X, I, I'm not another social media. I'm also lurking on LinkedIn, and I'm always very interested to talk about cognition, thinking, technology, and what it means to do these things more richly together. What is your X handle, Tom? My own name, Tom Chatfield. Oh, just so at Tom Chatfield, C-H-A- that's, that's correct. C-H-A-T-F-I-E-L-D. Exactly correct, yes. Well, Tom, once again, thank you very much for joining us this morning from your office close to London. And I will definitely follow up with that reference to The Economist. And I hope that our listeners will too. Again, look forward to having you back in the not too distant future. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 491. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total, and join our listener base in 60 countries. Feedspot has recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 